This podcast is brought to you by Steinberg, creators of the VST protocol, the award-winning DAW Cubase, and audio interfaces. At Steinberg, we put creativity first. Learn more at steinberg.net. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. I first interviewed producer, musician, and engineer Steve Fisk for Tape Op issue number three in 1996. Steve has made a name for himself, recording iconic tracks for groups like Beat Happening, Nirvana, The Screaming Trees, Low, and Car Seat Headrest. He's also been a prolific solo musician and member of the fine groups Pell-Mell and Pigeonhead. I met up with Steve as he prepared to move from Seattle to Tacoma, Washington. Enjoy. We roll through Oakland all the way to the city, bringing pride in a new sense of joy. Well, my thing is I started recording Pickerel in that viper's nest called the Screaming Trees. Yeah, yeah. And Jack yeah. was recording in uh, Soundgarden. Right. And they both had exactly the same drum kit. No way. <laughs> and I was going, how come I can't hear a single thing Mark Pickerel's doing? And Jack right. told me everything that he did for Matt. And, right, right. And it's just it's two different bands. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, trees right. is just both a, great drummers. Oh, great drummers and yeah. great bands, yeah. wonderful yeah, bands. Terrific, and I was yeah. so lucky to be working with the Screaming Trees. Yeah. But there was no room in that diaspora <laughs> for drums for drums to really read. <laughs> you know, it was thick. Yeah, it was real thick. Eight tracks with like three channels of guitar overdubs. Yeah, you know, just layered it on. I was thinking about that stuff the other day because I was going to be coming over here, and I was thinking about. I learned so much at their expense. <laughs> and, and 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 their grand ideas that they were trying to execute in my feeble attempts to <laughs> to help get them. it off. Yeah, no, no, and and then this oh, headphone shit. I fucked up their headphones so many times. I made Mark Lanigan go home. I blasted his ears so bad one oh, time. Oh, jeez, ouch. Yeah, no. So yeah, <laughs> that's how we learn. Yeah, poor. Scre- <laughs> if anybody of the deer screaming trees is by the grace of God listening to this, <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> you know, music. but you were, they were like, you were at that point living in, uh, Ellensburg, Ellensburg, I just kept, kept thinking Everett, Ellensburg and, and should have been living in Everett. Where else were they going to record? Oh, they I know that was out. the worst part is that yeah. I was the wrong guy for the job and I was the only guy there. <laughs> Actually, the guy before me really would have been the wrong guy for the job right. because he was a good engineer that wouldn't record punk rock. Right. Oh my God. Or, that's or at least funnier. I was like, oh, psychedelic punk rock. Sure. Sure. <laughs> you know, let's make that happen. That's you're you're a. Uh... And the Dukes of Stratosphere records were out there, and oh that was my God. and those were common ground for us. Right. Those records. Yeah. Yeah. John Lucky. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. And uh, the um, American Music Club Engine. Mm-hmm. That Tom was more. Yeah. That Tom yeah. Allen. Yeah. That was another common yeah. ground record. But you know, I've only yeah. been to and He kept it for two years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that that sort of depth, the dynamics of that record, and and the reverbs, the appropriate reverbs, and depth that Tom Allen pulled out of that, put onto that. Oh, I learned those so were much labors of love for him. I got to be recorded by Tom about three times. Yeah, I was wondering, yeah. like in the Pell-Mell era, Pell-Mell and Paris Working, mm-hmm. and oh, right. I forget what else, but yeah, he was like the Jack and Dino. San right. Francisco. He was just a selfless he guy. He started like a little bit before our friend Greg Freeman put mm-hmm. his place together and, and he was doing... Actually, he was there years before Greg yeah, Freeman. Yeah, years, yeah. He was from the 80s. Right, right. 
he were, you know, he was he was the go to cheap guy that you knew you could underpay and yeah. exploit. Yeah. <laughs> and and his big oh god, I sound so negative. I'm sorry, people. <laughs> but his big thing was he did the early uh, Silvertone records, the Chris Isaac records. Oh, I didn't even know. I didn't put that together for some reason. Yeah, and they yeah. kind of took over his studio, and I don't know if anybody else ever got back in. Right, that right. might be a grotesque over exaggeration. Right, he, but he was working for everybody, and then keep you really busy. You know, <laughs> do you want a war story? This is a good one. I thought maybe, maybe I've told you this one. You can cut this out, but uh, <clears throat> they had two A tracks sunk together with Simpty Timecode. Oh dear, and this was to record Silvertone, which is yeah. Sun Sessions style instrumentation, yeah. right? Yeah. And for those of you unfamiliar with this, but if you edit tape with timecode on it, you might have a problem <laughs> or might not, depending if you luck out or not. Right. And they Where spend. Lands. Right. So this was clicked off fake Elvis music. This is Silvertone. This is yeah. where Chris Isaac started. And they did a whole song. They worked forever to get the take right. And then the producer turns to Tom and says, okay, um, Go in at every measure and cut off this much tape so we can bring it up. So we had to go in and make like 40 edits. Three minutes. To make it faster? To make it faster. Oh, jeez. Well, and expect the thing, the primitive time code, they'll still lock the two decks. Yeah, no, normally it doesn't. <laughs> That's the first time I ever heard that magical thing that the kids these days don't know of the vocal, of the drums being solid and the vocals going high and low and high and low right. until they lock in and then they're the vocals. Oh, God, right? Yeah. Oh, God. I mean, we did some stuff with John Botch Gloopy. We were syncing a 16 and an 8 track for extra overdubs, you know, and just weren't, weren't really like waiting for the damn thing to, to catch up and lock, you know? Yeah. Oh, dear God. Well, then, uh, who's the the, um, the German engineer that uh, did Another One Bites the Dust? Oh, Mac. Reinhold Mac. Reinhold Mac. His yeah. old story about having to, like, start the song at the beginning to go punch in two minutes in. <laughs> <laughs> dude that was my world yeah yeah i felt that pain so hard i mean that that was that yeah. was the mid 80s and time code and midi and yeah you know, know we, making midi work with tape and we don't want to be like a you know walk a mile in the snow to go to school but but the, there's so many things that were so much more difficult i, I remember i love the gary newman interview oh yeah yeah, yeah that's that sort of like it was interesting because he's seen the whole process change massively over time too. I well, mean, and he really does seem to be coming from this great place all the way along. Yeah, he's right. got this crazy vision, and right, and he right. knows he's got a certain amount of skill. But mm -hmm. I don't know. He seems like he's he's kept his eye on it. You know. Yeah, it's really interesting. I yeah. thought that was a real fun fun chat. You think about you know what a, I I just read a book that Peter Hook wrote about being a new order. Yeah, I have to read that. Oh my god, it's so good, and it's, he talks a lot about the production end of it, like like incredibly difficult things they were trying to get the sequencers to to lock in and then all these things you know that they're having trouble with and then on stage everything goes to shit every night you know and they're trying to do you know you're trying to create future music you know you're trying to create the new music and it's difficult <laughs> did they talk about um the uh dr beat dropping out in isolation the song joint Division song Isolation. no Okay, there's a song, one yeah. of the great songs by Joy Division called Isolation. You kids yeah. can go find it on YouTube. Yeah, it's a great one. And the electronic drums stop for eight beats and come back in. Right. The drum machine did it on its own. Just randomly. Just went, huh? And now I'm back. That's and really it's the weird. best part of the song. It's it where like, the bridge is supposed to yeah. be. <laughs> <laughs> I love stuff like that. Yeah. But once you've got a body of work, you've been doing things like this for 20, 30 years or so. People are coming from all kinds of places to work for you. People send you things to mix from 
other countries, I'm sure. Yeah, I've done that a few times. Yeah, me too. And it's it's like, okay, Seattle has spawned some beautiful music and done great things, but you're not beholden to Seattle yourself, you know? Your, your, your life isn't determined just by Seattle, I should say. Well, yeah, and you know? I've gone from being excited about recording Nirvana to being sad that I recorded Nirvana to it being immaterial that I recorded Nirvana. But th this is something I did want to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a good point. While I'm here talking to this thing, uh, <laughs> it's going out on the internet when the internet opened up, you know, the first people waiting who were so excited to talk to me and had thousands of questions that wanted me to record the records. Nirvana fans. No. Insane people that love Nirvana and wanted to make gigantic <laughs> records and had questions about lyrics, idiotic questions about murders, you know, and and then and then yeah. just like they just like the the internet was just like oh my god yeah well it's just mush and sadness pouring out on my desk and yeah. so I became a little phobic about people I met on the internet right and it, right. and and, yeah. and I'm just it's my tiny violin music but I probably would be better part. Of the internet, <laughs> if if the you know, like Jack and Dina put up a website early on. Yeah, I love Jack's website. It's really good. There's a lot of great information on it. Yeah, but it, it's also it's it's a very buffered uh, website as far as getting a hold of him in a certain way. And he has an FAQ. Read the FAQ before you bother me. And right. Things like that, which um, you know, we all. Need and filters. God bless him, he'll tell people, go read 13 on the FAQ. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's awesome. Um, you know, and Jack's, and you and Jack, every, I mean, wonderful, sweet people who are really open with your knowledge when you sit down and, you know. But it's like, we need, we all need uh, buffers and we need protection to just be able to keep working, get our work done. And things we have to get done in front of us. And yeah, and when a band is as big as that and emotionally sparks people in a certain ways you get some loom balls man yeah and it's really disturbing i've run into a few of those because of elliot smith you know that's <laughs> why we're talking about it here today <sighs> folks you could be lucky enough to record a hit record earlier in your career and have it be this horrible thing like your elvis's buddy <laughs> and you've got three things to say about elvis and everybody asks the same three questions over yeah. and over again you know? and it's like I just miss my friend, you know, at the end of the day. Yeah. And I'm, I, I I'm miss... sad there isn't a fourth record. That's where I'm going. Right? You exactly, know? Exactly, <laughs> man. Totally. You know? I wish. And it's like, that's the hardest thing is you're just saying to people, like, I'm my tastes are not bound just by this one client. And my, uh, you know, I'm happy to work with people that are good songwriters because good songwriters are good songwriters no matter what. Well, then by 2018, but, yeah. I can record people that sound a little bit like Nirvana and, and it's, it's not It's so stupid. far... Yeah, 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 yeah. Where the first, and this is the other thing. God, we're going to get right off of this because it's so old. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but the, the first round of Nirvana impersonators were weak. Yeah. And the next round were a little better but still weak. And so you had to get about 20 <laughs> ripples deep in the pond before it was just like yeah. Queen. And yeah, I like that yeah. song. And so and then they don't really think that this is how I'm going to get famous or this yeah. is how I'm going to get back at my mom or <laughs> whatever yeah, yeah, you're yeah. trying to do out there on the internet. I mean, you know? it's it's a case. I think it's a thing to, you know, I mean, I, I think you're, we're both here because we studied music fanatically when we were young. Yeah. And uh, if you look at the history of things, you go, okay, the Beatles were good because they listened to all this kind of music like rockabilly and country and Motown style music and, and R&B. And they kept listening. And they kept listening. They learned whole albums of stuff to go play in Hamburg. And they learned how things were structured, and they learned about just, you know, they, they learned song structures, modulations, and they put it into their music. Nirvana were good because guess what? 
Flipper, the Melvins, and the Beatles, and other catchy yeah. things, and you and and Black Sabbath, and and then you mash that all Queen. together. Queen, yeah. yeah, and you mash it all together, and there's this thing. But then they weren't good because they did try to sound like a band that sounded just like them, <laughs> and they don't sound just like the Melvins, obviously, which is great. It's yeah, great that there was the inspiration and the camaraderie, and then you do your own thing. Well, just to make this sound like a bunch of old yeah, men complaining God. at a cracker table, but that's right. <laughs> but look at Napster, all right? Yeah, uh, I'm, make, I'm waving my hands around, kids. <laughs> but imagine the music industry is an arc that started out with selling mechanicals yeah. on, on portable pianos on bicycles right. in New York at the turn of the century, <laughs> right? Right. And this whole thing is this ever-building arc that leads up to the ultimate failure of the system when it becomes so top heavy that it falls from its own weight. Right. And the peer to peer thing kind of shows up about a year and a half later, you know, and then we're off to the races in this happy, weird, deadwood, crime ridden, <laughs> you know, hellscape we're living in now. Everybody <laughs> writing music to make things sound good on laptops and earbuds. Okay. But the point of it is, is that the kids now, they look at that and they don't understand what motivates what gets people into a mm. band, what you know, why anybody would get on the road. These are all questions we can't answer here. But yeah. what I what I'm saying is that Nirvana were the last non internet band. Yeah. They were yeah. the last band, and then that's ridiculous, a grotesque oversimplification, right, but they but, were the last zeitgeist. Right. They were the last thing to hit, happen, and bloom in this world where they are influenced by their peers. They're influenced by the history of music. Yeah. And right after that, you get iTunes. Yeah. Knowledge of the past dwarfs the present and gets in the way of innovation. Right, Ooh, right. there we go. I, I think the internet's great, but it destroyed regionalism or at least changed regionalism and it changed mm -hmm. how people hear and write and, yeah. and that's good. But right. I'm just saying Nirvana was like, of course Nirvana is important to these people here in the future. Right, because right. it was the end of that system. Right, it's something, and it was yeah. it was held up in a certain way, and it, it worked in a certain way, and and became famous, and and it was decent music. And it, but it worked <laughs> the way Big Star worked. Right, it right. worked the way Sly and the Family Stone yeah, yeah, worked. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. just was good music made right. by good people that had a an open mind and listened to yep. a lot of records. Yeah. What do you see you know? with the projects you've worked on, like the last ten years or five years? What what do you you know what what draws you to a project, and what do you see in it that you relate to when you're working with someone half your age or so well yeah. first off there's a great opportunity to tell stories <laughs> and uh that being said i listen a lot and yeah. i learn a lot yeah um and it's odd but i think enough time has elapsed that that people really have uh a great familiarity and a certain amount of skill in home studios so mm -hmm. Um, a lot of times it's people who want to work with me because they've kind of figured out everything. They're very learned people. Right, right, <laughs> um, right. And they know what they want to do by the time they come here. Right. As far as, like, what interests me, you know, um, I can tell you something I'm bad at, and yeah. I've tried to do it many times, yeah. and I just think that my angle just doesn't work for people, is that whole melange of having giant rock bands and giant synthesizers. So some please doing the weekend in ministry and mm -hmm. and Trent Reznor or something like that. Right, right. You know, like uh, I don't have the patience or the smarts or anything to go make a hissy drum machine make sense inside a pounding drum kit with 16 <laughs> tom-toms and right. background vocals and pitch corrected this and that. It's like I can, and I can even appreciate music like that yeah, once in a yeah. while. But um, 
First off, it's such a tired idea. It is from 1986, <laughs> yeah. and it hasn't really gone anywhere. I'm sorry. It still yeah. hasn't really gone anywhere. Yeah. And I just know from a history of people bringing me stuff like that that I, I just suck at it. And I make things out of it that I like, but the people that are in it, are, you know, they're trying to make that blue hood for the 57 Chevy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it comes out with a horn and a stripe. Yeah, and yeah. That's not what I want to shoot. Yeah. You know? and, uh, so maybe I don't do genre as well as I would like to think I do. Maybe that's that's a silly thing to say here. And also at the same time, yeah. punk rock is elusive because there's so what many different it? flavors of punk rock <laughs> yeah, yeah. and there's so many years it's been recorded that I've had a wonderful record with a great set of people and I won't even name them because it's such a great record and they're such nice people, but we argued about how to get two guitars, bass and drums right. Right. For a long time, and me and the band couldn't figure it out, and so they had a good friend that so he came over, yeah, and he produced the record, and I still mixed it, and it got done. Right, but it was just like you know, well, okay, what point? Where's the snare? How dirty are the guitars? How big is yeah. the chorus get? How much does the '90s change your perspective of punk rock? And <laughs> yeah, you know, all of that. So, so yeah, punk rock is something I've been failing at sometimes. <laughs> uh, music happens in these other ways, and right. these other right. You know, and I have nothing to do with it. I'm very, you know, I can't listen to streaming music. I really hate what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. I found that I like hip hop on mm -hmm. Spotify. Yeah. Because it's about rhythm. It's not about uh, texture and stereo right. imaging. It's diff sometimes different, yeah. Yeah, so some of my favorite hip hop stuff in Los Lobos, Chad Blake stuff sounds great on Spotify. Sounds great on anything. Well, that sounds great on anything, <laughs> but I'm saying what Chad does, they yeah, can't yeah. undo with the Spotify code. Right. right. Oh my God. There's you some, know. I think there's an app out now where you can, you can put your mixes into it or your mastered mixes into it and then hear what it'll sound like through different streaming services. It's the thing there was I, a, there was an industry for a while about, you know, putting the, the codecs on your mix so you could hear what it sounded like there. Yeah, you know, but it didn't. They couldn't show you what it sounded like if you did an analog transfer from one MP3 to another MP3 and overdrove it yeah. <laughs> and got Moyer patterns all over it. Yeah. Does anybody know what a Moyer pattern is? Uh, it doesn't sound good. No, that's, that's <laughs> when you put the two. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's funny. <laughs> how does how does a job like a car seat headrest come your way? How did that originate? Ridiculous. Yeah. He moved to the Northwest. <laughs> yeah. The Matador people said, isn't Steve Fisk still out there? Yeah. Why don't you talk to Steve Fisk? That's just an old, that's how it old happened. connection yeah. for you, too. Yeah. That's Tell a, me about it. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So, and, and, and uh, Will was into it. Yeah. And, but, you know, how many times have you worked for somebody that's made 11 records? Hmm. A few, maybe. Yeah. yeah and few, it's true. Yeah. yeah. So he was yeah. 23 and he made 11 records. That's crazy. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we kind of told each other on the way into it. Uh, I don't have any secrets. Yeah, yeah. I'm happy to show you everything I do. Yeah. And I think it would be unrealistic to assume that you wouldn't want to be involved in at least the mixing and some of the production of it because you've done so much stuff. Yeah. And I can't pretend to, in a week, catch up with 11 records mm -hmm. and really understand what you do. <laughs> and uh, uh, I think... At one point, uh, you know, I was going to give him mixing credit, you know, or we're going to split mixing credit or something like yeah. that. And ultimately, he chose not to do that. But it was a handoff. Yeah. Just, you know, I was still smoking cigarettes. That was the tail end of my cigarette time. And so yeah. I would go get a smoke and he would. And by the way, yeah. he jumped right into Pro Tools and was just 
knew exactly what he was doing. He never used Pro Tools before. Really? But he found the <laughs> shit that made it dirty and the shit yeah. that made it EQ. And Isn't that crazy? Yeah. yeah. And, and there's a couple of songs on that record I could point to that are completely Will style. And, yeah. And the guitars are big and the drums disappear a little bit. And, yeah. You know, and that, you know that's fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, so, I mean, in some of those cases, like I've worked with Jason Lytle before, your granddaddy or something. Like, yeah. Part of the process for him writing is is recording. You know, going in, trying overdubs, building the tracks up. And so when you'd start mixing one of his songs, you wouldn't just just, just strip it down and then put it up on faders because you'd lose his mix he had in Pro Tools. So oh, yeah. That's a rough would, one. Yeah. 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 So you'd I know that. put up on two tracks and split the drums out, then put the bass out, and then, you know, to try to start without destroying what was beautiful about what he created. I'd never done anything like that. That's yeah. smart. That's a fun, you know, because you're looking at someone's working methodology and you if you if you throw it out, we actually the first song we tried to just I stripped it bare, zeroed it out, and put it on the chord, and he was like, "This is gonna be so hard," you know. <laughs> and then, so we started working differently, and and I think when you got someone who has a real methodology, you've got to, especially these days, they can they can be coming from all kinds of angles and different DAWs and different uh, really odd methodologies of of creating writing and working within the computer and the music and the microphones and whatever else. And we've got to figure it out as a producer or a mixer or co-producer, whatever we're doing. Yeah, because there's not any rules now. I mean, yeah. a good deal of my thing, how I make things sound normal is I do things the way people do things. So right. I right. start with the color. <laughs> yeah. So it's a tape plug-in or some kind of, you know, or it sounds fine as it is. Right. And yeah. then you compress it. Yeah. And then you EQ it. <laughs> and then... You listen to how it sounds with everything else, yeah. you know, and right. you don't put the EQ first unless you're trying to affect what the compressor is going to do. And you don't put <laughs> the tape last because the tape goes on first. And, right. <laughs> and of course, you know, you do whatever you do now. It doesn't matter. I mean, that's, yeah. how, that's how the kids destroyed mastering. Yeah, you know, what's this thing do? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what's yeah. this plugin that came with the plugin package? What's it do? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's different. It's, well, it's the Wild West. It's like, you know, it used to be like, okay, we got a book time in a studio. Is it six, you know, eight, sixteen, or twenty-four tracks? And and you know, go buy some tape, and then you, it, everything had to stay at the studio because it's on the tape. And then and what you heard was, yeah. Yeah, if you're lucky, you had a cassette. Yeah, and yeah. You knew it was home. wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as we sat here, we've watched the the uh, the professional recording world lost control. You know, because they had the control by saying, well, I've got a $40,000 tape deck. You can't own one, so you have to come here. You know, and they lost that control, and it changed the studio paradigm, and it's changed, like, you know, your paradigm. You couldn't do, you could have had, like, a four-track or eight-track reel-to-reel in here or a stack of ADATs at one point or whatever, but until it was... There was? There was, there was one. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it all, it's all been slowly shifting over time. But it's very different now, you know? I mean, I... I, I envy kids that are like growing up and they got like a garage band on their dad's laptop. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, I would have died from multi-track. I was trying to figure out how to do multi-track with three cassette decks or whatever, you know? Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. I had a good friend when I was 17. His name's Mike Christie. He might actually listen to this. He's much older than <laughs> me. Uh, he was 10 years older than me, but he had two uh, reasonably good uh, consumer pro Sony decks. Right. And we just bounced between them. That was my first yeah. thing. I yeah. didn't have a four track. I just right. hung out with Mike all day and you know, yeah. we just made weird synthesizer music, you know. <laughs> right. I mean it's like you just had driven to try to create and you've got you don't you've got limited resources, you know. And now it's like some kid can be 
step in and here's a here's a if you get just some MIDI keyboard for fifty dollars, twenty dollars, you can plug it in through USB and play piano and program and have drum loops already programmed for you. It's crazy. Do you remember how I got Steve Albini to like me at the Tape Op conference? Um we were on a panel together. Yeah. I wonder how <laughs> And his voice was destroyed because he'd been screaming and yelling and doing uh, moderation for you for three or four days. So yeah, yeah. it wasn't just Steve Albini. It was Ethel Merman, Steve Albini. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and the, the panel was just a bunch of producers. And I forget what we were supposed to be talking about. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't the uh, what made me want to record panel. We right. Have. But I talked about some scenario where you're just about finished with the mix and the guitar player wants 15 channels opened up for a guitar idea he has, and the oh. A&R man's sitting right there, and you know that this guy knows how to run the computer, yeah. and that you have to stop doing what you're doing because it's his session, and the A&R guy's there, and, is, and at that point, who's producing the session? And, and this is the problem with computers, you know, right. whatever. And, right. you know, it's, I, you know I, I'm starting to like this guy. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and that was, then everybody applauded, and we all walked out of whatever that... It was down in Portland. Yeah, that's a few years ago. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, dude, I saw it coming. You know what I used to say? What? You know what I used to say? <laughs> what did you say? Well, I used to, well, you know, because punk rock was about getting rid of the gatekeepers. Right, absolutely. And anybody yeah. can record. Yeah. And, right? And and being in, in places like Olympia and, and stuff where you really see people take that to heart. You right. Know? You know? Same time, if somebody wrote a CD every time somebody left or every time their dog died... We'd be drowning in music. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Larry. Right? We're drowning in music. <laughs> We're drowning in music. Everybody does write a CD's worth of shit. They don't make a CD anymore, thank God. Right, right. You know, but but yeah. It's, the gatekeeping thing is totally different. Yeah. It there is. isn't a gatekeeper. Yeah. My revolution, the op revolution, That's is right. here. Yeah. We won. Anybody can make any kind of record they want anytime. No one can stop them. Yeah. Radio doesn't matter anymore. MTV doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. You know? This is what I wanted in 1980. <laughs> this thing we're in right now. So uh, I'm trying to figure out, you know, well, all the good things. Because it's and, a good and thing. What, and know? what our roles are in it. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's like, that's always shifting. But it's also like, you know, we choose to help people express it and, and, and fine-tune it and make it work and you collaborate with them to make sure they which do is a great better. job which I think is it's, a great I love this job. job yeah i mean there's a lot to scratch your head about but there's also a lot to say like man you know you know what a good day at the studio feels like very productive right and and, and positive and, and we've we've helped do something that wasn't going to maybe get done the right way right in our minds and right? maybe right. somebody right. even thanked you yeah, maybe. Like, I didn't know. I didn't even. <laughs> I didn't know it was that easy. Or I've struggled yeah. with this, and now I see what yeah. you know. Yeah. That, I'm sorry. I'm not. I'm not trying to gloat, but that's yeah. kind of makes me happy. Right. I, totally. I, I, I'm generational. I'm from teachers going back probably five generations. So yeah, I got that in the blood. Well, someplace, like what you, you know? know, the question could be like, I always think like, why? What What do we do to program ourselves as producer engineers to stay in this game? And what is it that we, because there's got to be some endorphin rush at some point or, or, or something that feels good to see your name on the back of a record still or mentioned in an article, a review, whatever it is, you know, because it's like, you know, the pay is, is, is when it's good, it's nice enough, but sometimes it's not as good as it could have been. And 
So it's not really a job. I would, if I just wanted money, I would certainly never do this job. And if it's I wanted security, it's not predictable enough. That's that's yeah. that's the people you got to get rid of at the beginning. If the people yeah. don't think it's going to be a steady income, oh my gosh, and they'll be working on yeah. music they like. Yeah, yeah, you I know, because that's, that's not going to happen. That's generally not going to happen. But it's like you know, what is it that we, what is it that we get from it that makes us want to keep doing it? You know, I, you know, <laughs> you're talking to somebody. <laughs> I used to do my own music, right? Absolutely, and I, I, I. Uh, for better or for worse, got shut down by copyright legislation. <laughs> you know, you were an early, like, creative adopter of sampling and, and mucking things up and doing cool dubby things. And Well, yeah. and, and I mispronounced the name, the Australian guy that does all the archival work, but does his amazing solo stuff as well. He was three issues ago. That oh, oh, Gautier. Gautier. Okay, yeah, yeah, there you yeah, go. Yeah. And he was talking about when yeah. you jump to the sampler. I'm pretty sure he said that in that article about yeah. like all of a sudden like using the sampler as like a shortcut to making things sound big and expensive and, and beyond your means to, to, to replicate. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's a really great thought. Yeah. I mean, and if you listen, if you listen to the shit that somebody's going to take down, probably because I'm talking about it on the internet, on Spotify, <laughs> you can clearly hear that it's been multi destroyed through several cassette decks but it is <laughs> like high production you know r&b and hip-hop that right. i was busy ripping off and sampling in 1981 when i didn't have a sampler i had a tape machine right right you know and i was aiming for a cassette release so nobody was trying to make right. any money right you know right i mean you know yeah. it's just expression it's not commerce <laughs> yeah and so you get the eight yeah. to one limiting and all that beautiful shit you get from cassette <laughs> but i can't imagine anybody thinking that i was doing any of that shit to make money i can't you know yeah yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a different thing from going to like Paul's Boutique, you know, on a major label with massive promotion distribution yeah. to like a cassette that was being put out, you know, from Olympia or wherever. Calvin. Calvin, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah, I mean, that's a whole different ball game, you know. I but mean, it was a wonderful thing to be able to do in 1980. Yeah, oh yeah. Much more inspiring than anything oh, I'm I, doing now with this. Yeah. <laughs> We're here, I can do anything now. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Well, limitations are inspiring, you know that. Yes, we all know that. Yes, yes, I mean, there's... You know, talking about the two reel-to-reel tape decks and layering synthesizers because... Or making a tape loop. Making a tape loop. So you get something that repeats and... And knowing that you, you have know. to make it and then you have to document it and move on. Right, you right. Know, you're not going to set up a tape loop every time you work on the song. No, you no, know? no. you gotta, you got to commit to things. Yeah. And, and, and wrap them up. <laughs> and move forward. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's that's, true. That's why I have a record called 999 Levels of Undo. Because <laughs> that was a sales... That was a plus on uh, an early roll and multi-track format that doesn't exist anymore oh my god that's just the best title too i mean it's it's a great it's a great thing to run with yeah well not only that but i stole it from the artist i was working with and his eric i gotta remember his last name but he's going that would be a great name for a record and i went you're right on the road yeah (laughs) (laughs) well inspiration comes from everywhere that's right that's right (laughs) One one thing I got a, I got something I want you to, to throw in here on, with me because I kept thinking about this after the Gautier interview, and um, I was talking to someone after that, and I was, we were talking about reverbs, the history of artificial reverb in the studio. You know, I'm showing here's my EMT 140, here's my spring reverb, here's you know, so that we started with tape slap back and we started with uh, chambers, you know, and 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 then we got these plates and then we got these. Little spring reavers are smaller. We got, you know, then we got digital analog delays. We got tape delays. We got digital delays. 
and I'm going through all this stuff, and then I was like, you know, and then like I remember going like to Greg Freeman's studio and using the SBX ninety, and we were like had one reverb unit. That was it. And we were okay. We record through it onto this one track. Use this in the mix. What do you think of the concept of, of the reverb, especially in the, that era of the eighties and stuff, as making the recording sound as if more expense has been. So basically, this is like a classism of recording quality via reverb um, to, to indicate that we spent more money on this because we have this actual giant reverb that must have, it wasn't common. Remember? Right, right, like, right. Like artificial ambience is something that almost always costs money to create. Right, you know? in about 1984, 85, it started yeah. getting into the consumer's hands. Alesis, Yamaha. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, it's me- interesting, right? TC. Neutron. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, Mut- uh, Mutron, uh, the blue ones with the push buttons oh. from New Jersey. Musictron, something Tron. I know, Effectron. Effectron, yeah. yeah. Oh, man, yeah. No, working with Tom Mallon, he had yeah. three. See? I, and I, I, remember I, I remember I went to a session, I knew what we were going to do with each one of them because I had a plan. Right. mapped it out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Always. I mean, that's interesting, though, to think that, that and Gautier kind of brought that up, like they sound bigger and expansive, more well-recorded by using samples of other things. And you're like, oh, my God, and the reverbs and things, too. Well, I think that, that that's the beginning of turntablism. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sabotnik talked about all of this, where, like, instead of a kid learning how to play the violin, he knows how to cue an orchestra up on a turntable. And there's... Right. You know, so... so uh, Yeah. And... You asked the wrong guy the question, because I've got a long answer. <laughs> Let's do it. Okay, <laughs> forty-four one sixteen on mm-hmm. an SPX ninety. I don't think it was even that. Yeah, it was pretty low. Yeah, it was like thirteen bit or twelve bit or something. Maybe eight. I don't know. It's low. And yeah. it was doing double duty, so right. it was actually flipping sides forty thousand times a second. Oh, so the in and the out. Yeah. We're, we're... No, 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 no. Left side, right oh, side, left oh, side, oh, right God, side, right, right, right. Okay. As it comes in and as it goes out. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So. Oof. Uh. I have the suspicion that between the DX7's propensity to play upper mid-range tonalities and sonorities uh-huh. yeah. and the capacity of artificial ambience to grab those things and carry them out, yeah, yeah. I think cocaine <laughs> drove that on one level oh, absolutely. because the guy that's high on cocaine is looking for that animal experience of hearing... You high know, frequencies. Uh, high frequencies yeah. and uh, fight or flee mechanism and all this stuff yeah. outside the field. I mean, mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with that except it will kill you <laughs> and make you make bad music. But but the studio <laughs> owners had cocaine. Yeah. And they were chasing this out. Yeah. And then back here in uh, the consumer world, that's where the English sound came from. Right. And I remember moving to San Francisco and the first time I'd heard the English sound in a San Francisco studio and how it sounded terrible and alien and gigantic. Right, you right. Know? And then somewhere in there, and boy, you speak to this so effectively. AMS. The, AMS was the AMS. those, the 16 or whatever, yeah. But also the Christian rock thing. <laughs> Figures out there's oh so God. So I think they led a lot of kids to Jesus by playing chariots of fire kind of stuff with... Pounding, twirling, pulsing yeah, DX7s yeah. Yeah. and artifacts going pew, 
yeah, like yeah. Las Vegas signs coming over the back just because the poor naked ape doesn't even understand what that's going on. Now, Christian rock isn't like that anymore, and it's done by Christians, you know, and it's okay. But back then, Christian rock was done by older people for younger people, and they right. were trying to figure out how to bring them in, and they right. were just using anything they could. Right, so, to make so it sound I, appealing. And yeah, or, or to make it special. The voice from the mountaintop, I always thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's what digital reverb yeah. is. It's the voice yeah. of God. Yeah, uh, it's the voice of the Human League. <laughs> it's the voice of Manchester. Yeah, you know probably. that the AMS reverb was developed in Manchester, right? Right, right, right nearby. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, I, I mean, you read that right? As they actually talked to the dude, right? Uh, you know, yeah. Uh, he's like, oh, we used to meet up with Martin and give yeah. him things to try out, and then we'd pick his brain. You know, Martin Hannett. And Martin, like, Han and Martin Hannett oh. is the guy that talked me back off the ledge. Back when I was recording fast, cheap, dirty on a four track and all yeah. of this, Peter Randlett loaned us his amazing speakers. <laughs> we had him in my apartment yeah. in Olympia when I was in college, and I heard yeah. the Joy Division records, and I'm like, oh, okay, reverb is good. Oh, man. You know what's <laughs> you know? wrong with me? Atmosphere. First time I heard Atmosphere on that big 12 inch you'd get from Rough Trade in the mm -hmm. States. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went to Barbara Manning's house. And she had these big, huge, I think we all call them frat boy speakers, you know, you yeah, know what yeah. I mean? They're big, huge wooden speakers. Peters were homemade. Peters were homemade. They were probably really good. <laughs> I think that some of the elements yeah. were blown up, but we didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, good luck. <laughs> yeah, that's why we have them. But man, you know, that, that, that recording is really deep and rich and it's a really... three-dimensional. Yeah, an interesting use of a lot of things, you know. Yeah, no, Martin Hannett was so yeah. good and so lucky to work with the people that brought him that, all that great stuff. No... Yeah. Martin Hannett, George Martin, those were, yeah. I'm sorry to play all the Martins on the show, but, <laughs> but those, when people used to ask me back when I didn't have answers, that's what pointed those guys. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. Before I knew more people, you know, those are the guys that made me want to do this. And understand, I was from an ethos where we had destroyed the music business and we're doing it, everything with one microphone in a basement, you know. Right, right. My first records were four track, you know, right. and they got played on the radio. What you had. Yeah. You know. You know. So, what were some of the first things you recorded for other people? The Beakers. Oh, yeah. Just got reissued on K. No way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there you go. Just yeah. got reissued. Thank you. Some of my first uh, things I produced. Yeah. Uh, Max Band, which has become kind of important. Is it which the, one? The Max Band. Really? Yeah. I don't know this one. Uh, Colin McDonald, who was later the lead singer for Three Swimmers, but mm -hmm. he was in a Velvet Underground-y, dirgy three-piece with uh, Chris Utting, who was later in The Muffs. Uh -huh. And I forget who the bass player was, but uh, oh my God. but but yeah, they uh, they had this wonderful band called the Max Band that opened shows at the Showbox, and right. I got invited to help record them once uh, down at Triangle when Triangle was Triangle. Right, right. And I oh, that's crazy. Forgotten about that until I got reminded <laughs> that. And then at Evergreen, the Visible Targets. Mm -hmm. But I mean, right. that was a that was so many great engineers worked on that. Ben Goldfarb worked on that. Drew Angulet right. worked on that. Right, right. But that stuff sounds amazing. Right, the visible target stuff done with sixteen track, two inch. Yeah, you know, Marshall feedback in the hallway with a break <laughs> in the concrete everywhere. Wow. Yeah, that's cool. Was it done on campus? Yeah, at this recording. Yeah, yeah, they played a show. This was a short period of time where the Evergreen State College and God, I'm not going to trash Evergreen. The Evergreen State College is a great place. I'm sorry, everybody, it's got a bad rep now. <laughs> yeah. But they would let bands come play events, and then they would get <laughs> studio time. Oh, uh, fun! Yeah, yeah, so that's how the three swimmers did a record there. Right, that record's been reissued. And nice. the visible targets, and um, God, that might have been it. Yeah, anonymous. My first forty-five. Yeah. Uh, Snake attack was recorded in the synth lab. The one that's in yeah. 
And John's well, photo. Yeah, and John's photo. And then the B side was done in the 16 track. Oh, and that's the one that's on Let Them Eat Jelly Beans. Oh, my God. <laughs> with the B people and the Dead Kennedys. Right. right. And the oh my God, Black that's... Flag and the Meat Puppets and Who Screwed Do. Yeah, everybody is on that. And the Feeders. The Feeders? And the Bad Brains. Isn't okay. That crazy? That's who you're talking to, kids. <laughs> I'm not Peter Buck. I'm Ted from Flipper. Yeah, that's who I am. You're Ted. talking to Ted from Flipper. Falcone. Ted Falcone, thank you. Let's get this right. How did you end up moving down to San Francisco? Is that specifically, that was after to join college, Pell right? To, do, to join Pell Mell? To join Pell Mell. Specifically. And those guys had come from Portland. Right. As I a mixed, two piece at that point, kind of? No, were they there? were a four piece originally. Right. With, uh, Arnie. with Arnie May. Yeah, I know Arnie. I and John Sorensen, John Lars Sorensen. Oh, right. And uh, Arnie May uh, wanted to do other things, and so we split. And I mixed uh, the, it's called It Was a Live Cassette. It's been reissued. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Jazz put it out. Yeah. And it's Pell-Mell uh, badly recorded. <laughs> Not a great evening. Yeah. Uh, Pell-Mell playing live in an art gallery down in Portland. Yeah. And I mixed it in the living room of that place in Olympia on yeah. those speakers I was telling you about. speakers. Actually, we, we, had, we had some uh, uh, EV101s. Uh, yeah. Is that what they were? I, Century 101s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, electric voice. Anyway, we mixed on those with a PA console and add a little break in the mixing. Uh, and this is when I had a track on Sub Pop. On the, this, right? I had a track oh, yeah. on the Sub Pop right. compilation. Number five. Yes. Well, no, Sub Pop 5, because that's the other thing yeah. the kids don't understand is that Sub Pop started in 1980. A long didn't time ago. didn't start in 1988 yeah. or whenever they think it started. but. You know, talk to Paul Manafort. He'll straighten it all out for you. Uh, but the point was with both when Pell and Mel and I were on the Sub Pop cassettes, we both knew what we were doing. And I mentioned yeah. that they'd lost a member and that they ever were thinking about a fourth member. I would love to be the fourth member of Pell Mel when they got a fourth member again. I just set it out again. And they apparently had already talked about it. Yeah. Like, because they've been sitting around going, we're a three-piece. And if we added a fourth person, would it be another guitar? No, we don't want it. Right, you know. Oh, that's interesting. So I came on as Alan Ravenstein. You know, yeah, right. <laughs> who is the synthesizer player for Perubu? Yeah, but this this will be in the. <laughs> yeah, what issue was that in? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know, but uh, but anyway, yeah. So I, I moved to the Bay Area to join Pellmell, and by this yeah. point, people were calling me a record producer because they were making records, and so they needed to put something on the jacket. Right, right. This is how a lot of people became a record producer, is when true. somebody made a jacket, their name got filled in. <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah. yeah, and I don't think I produced anything good in San Francisco. I got to do some things with some great people, and right. work in some good studios, but I didn't think I knew what I was doing at all. Yeah. You know, uh, when I moved to Ellensburg <laughs> and sort of working in the A-track there, right. uh, Sam Albright was very... Uh, thorough and showed me everything I needed to do to record a regular rock session. Right. And, and the second session I ever did there was the Screaming Trees. Nice. <laughs> and that's the clear voice. No, that's Other Worlds. Yeah, yeah, right. right. So, like, I'm in Dino. I just lucked out. Yeah. You know, I've got early, early stuff that sounds right. really, really good. Right. You know, with great always, musicians and great songs. That always helps. Yeah. I was thinking about you. I was driving over here and I was thinking about Steve. Yeah, like, you really, in a way... Like when I used to, when I was young, and like when Greg was working, Greg Freeman was recording my band, I'd be like, well, what is Greg doing? He's the producer, he's the engineer, of course. He's, he's manning the board and his stuff. But what does the producer part mean? You know, like I didn't know. And and when I met you and we started talking more about things, it became more like, Steve's really more of a producer, also has to engineer on the side. Like you, you're coming at it, 
I always felt like uh, um, you, this, I deal with the technical part so I can get the ideas and the collaboration and, and stuff and the cohesion, make a coherent, cohesive record and all these things, as opposed to people that kind of come into this wanting to be gear twiddlers. Right. Right. You know, and it's really, I think you've always, you always meet to me typified someone who really, you know, like I wouldn't see hiring Steve Fist to just engineer your stuff and not throw any ideas in the pot. Like, why would you do that? This, this you're wasting a resource. And that's what, okay, that's a producer. You know? Yeah, right, right. Oh, dude. Did I put it We're, right? Yeah, you put, no, you put it right. And, and uh, you know, um, Kitty. You, uh, you have to get used to being wasted. <laughs> that sounds so wrong. That doesn't sound. We're not talking about We're drug not talking about drugs. Although yeah. that helps sometimes, uh, not all the time. No, after, after you, after you, after you get wasted in quotes, then you can go out and have a beer. <laughs> yes, right. No, I mean, well, there's there's give and take in the art of producing. You can. It's very rare that you are the, uh, you know, the dictator. Right. You know, you have to. I mean, someone. There's always. It, it might be a collaboration with the record label and the manager to force the artist to make something that they don't want to make, but you're still collaborating with somebody. Yeah, you're still in between this or that. Or yeah. yeah. No, I. It, it's a little bit like a movie director. Right. Except the movie director is a lot more of an auteur and and the movie director is the star and it's their vision and everything. Right. But it is assembling a bunch of people at a certain place at a certain time with a certain skill set and a budget. Right. And then you have to (laughs) execute this thing and then carry it into post-production and deliver it. Yeah. yeah, But unlike movies, you know, the, uh, the actors are the musicians and they're the, the people that the content and the story yeah. and they're actors who are writing their parts. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Generally, yeah. Yeah. yeah if you so look at it that way. You're yeah. thinking, well, I'm hoping this is a good movie. You're directing something <laughs> that you're hoping is a good movie, but you don't have a script. Yeah. <laughs> you're right. What did, what did uh, Will say? Carson Henry says, Steve Fist taught me to quit, taught me to quit worrying about guitar sounds. Yeah, right. You know, that, that if, if you're playing a Telecaster through a twin with an SM57 and it's going to tape, It'll huh. be fine. You don't have yeah. to. I don't know if you meant you had to check it every minute, or yeah. make sure it was still right in the bridge, or I don't know what he was trying to say. Yeah, but I got the idea that he was, uh, you know, his his methodology was about tending things that were always needing tending. Where it's like, right. no, we have standards and practices. This is how right. this works. You know, one cannot have their eye on every single element of every single moment of a piece of music. You you try to make sure things are in place to to achieve the goals, but you can't be sitting there going, analyzing every quarter note and every tuning and every single nuance. When you're set up to doing tracking at Soundhouse, and I do albums in three days, I do albums yeah. in four days, I get the basics done. You know, I don't do a lot of EQ. Right. I trust that right. I know what the kick drum sounds like and that uh, that the studio's in good shape and I don't have to go looking for crackles and pops. You know, you, you trust the mics to do what they're supposed to do. You know what the amp sounds right. You've done this a million different times. And that gives you the place right. to step back and see the big picture. Or maybe you can begin to earn your money as a producer. If right. you can look at the whole thing, you know, instead of this microanalysis of yeah. just making sure everything kicks ass and that, you know, you're tracking the drums with tons of compression, but not too much compression. Yeah. I've been that guy, <laughs> you know, trying to make some completely dialed in, totally amazing sound that comes right. and you hit the button and it's there and it's just like, yeah, yeah, but he hit it a little too hard in the bridge and it goes wonky and that's right. my fault. That's yeah. my fault. Now it's my fault. Yeah. yeah. You know, or I'd yeah. rather go like, no, I got X amount of DBs. 
You know, I know what I can do. There's some headroom. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, and then if there's problems from there, then you step in or something like that. But I'm I'm actually kind of a lazy sound guy. (laughs) You know, I work on the drums. I'm into selecting the amps and all of that. But I'd much rather record what somebody thinks is something great and cool that's their thing. Um, right, saying, well, here's the drums I use, here's the bass I use, here's right, you know, right. You know. It has to be this way. You got to figure out what's the best thing about it, what's the worst thing about it, and then sculpt it. You know, yeah, and and where the problems might be. You know, like when you know somebody's got a, a 32 bars of guitars solo to connect two sections, they don't have a click track. Yeah, yeah. You know, you go like, oh, uh-huh. okay, we, uh-huh. you know, I don't like click tracks, but I do like click tracks. <laughs> Actually, I love click tracks. Yeah, when <laughs> you it's, know. yeah, you know, those are the dangerous zones we've flown through before, you know. Right. I wish people knew that was more like what my job was, was that, <laughs> no, I've been here. <laughs> I think you're in trouble there. Yeah, yeah. If right. I'm not, already, straighten me out. <laughs> you know? I've already been through this before. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it isn't about inventing anything new. It's about helping execute yeah. something. And at the end of the five days, you want your record, and you, you know, right. And you want it without a lot of editing, and you know, yeah. And 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 you assume that you know it'll, it'll render out right. You know, I someone kept an eye on it for you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, and I love working with assistant engineers. Mm-hmm. I still. I like that too much stuff, and I end up on my ass, and I, you know, <laughs> I'm a little uncomfortable being the guy on the couch the whole time. Every once in a while, it's yeah. sessions like that. Yeah, years ago, you worked with John Goodmanson for quite a number of records. Yeah, and yeah we got to do a lot of great records. Together. That sounded like a really fun partnership. Yeah, we as well. were really dialed in. Yeah, we, uh, you know, for as much as we did things differently, there was a giant intersect in the mm-hmm. pie charts <laughs> and so yeah people would talk about how did you guys figure that out you just just looked at each other yeah <laughs> oh yeah i heard about guys like that i guess that's us yeah <laughs> i didn't mean to be that guy you know? right but yeah. yeah i can't say enough great stuff about john yeah really top notch i mean yeah. he knows a lot you've done that with like a number of songwriters too you collaborate yeah. with them and build figure out how to present their songs and yeah some people co-write. walk up and they like my looping angle yeah. and things like that and then the end of those records go on forever. They don't happen in three days. That's a little bit of my thing too. God, that sounds so narcissistic and self-centered. <laughs> but, but like you know, there's a certain bit of like you know, like wow, you're really good. Let's show you how really good you are. Right. You know, and and then let's let's see what makes you better than the people that have influenced you, or at least mm-hmm. as good in your own way, or something. What's your like uniqueness? That. Yeah. Yeah. But you were when I when I showed up, you were just. Uh, having a meeting about the record label that you're starting or something. What is, what oh, you... I have a new band and I've been saying, guys, are you sure it's not like a concept or something more esoteric? And they go, no, Steve, it's a band. Uh, it's called the Grumps and it's, um, it's a rap mechanism. Yeah. And, uh, I'm a, a beats programmer. Yeah. And I don't perform. And I don't make funny hand signs, and I don't put on clothes. <laughs> uh, we took over Voodoo Donuts at South by Southwest, yeah. and had the first performance of the Grumps as part of Rich Jensen's podcast. Rich yeah. launched a podcast there as well, and it's potentially going to involve a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got a Native American focus. Cool. Yeah, and our chief rapper is this guy uh, Lane Stevens, aka Redskin. Mm-hmm. who's been a powerful voice in the Native American community and the Seattle hip-hop community. Nice. And all of the shits uh, since the 90s. Yeah. And uh, the looping and all of the stuff. Yeah. I'm not really doing regular hip-hop. I'm doing the Steve Fisk shit. Right, right. 
and some of it's been horribly illegal, and some of it's been clean as a whistle. <laughs> and I think we understand where all of this fits, but it's not about parties, and it's not about yeah. girls, and it's not about getting high. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's yeah, the problem, yeah. so we could talk yeah. about it more. But uh, Rich uh, uh, is a visionary and a behind-the-scenes uh bean counter <laughs> and he made sub pop happen he made yeah. up happen he made yeah uh all kinds of interesting things happen and uh and yeah uh cabin games has been putting out records for a while we put out the ghosties record a little while ago ghosties yeah. from portland Oregon. oh yeah yeah and right that was a lot of fun and then there's also been some really cool uh hip-hop acts through their silas black and uh it's been a lot of fun and i've yeah. met a lot of really cool people through through skin and and his connections and uh and I'm really excited about it. And it's kind of a loose-knit thing right now, but we've got seven tracks started and we're going to end up with an LP's worth of stuff and there'll be some videos. And yeah. Without a short changing the content, it's some pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. And it's not really particularly commercial either. And right. And Skin is a wonderful talent. Monster Watch is this amazing three-piece. There were four-piece when I yeah. tracked them. I done an EP's worth of stuff with them. Yeah. And I can hear bleach and in utero all over yeah. it. But it's the good stuff. Right, the good part. <laughs> it's just the angry stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. nobody's trying to get famous. No yeah. one's yeah. you know, looking in the mirror, playing the guitar. You know, yeah. it's 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 all real. It's uh, you know, and and uh God, I don't think they even know how much I hate fake nirvana they don't, <laughs> don't even think of themselves them. as fake nirvana they're not fake nirvana right. they're their own thing they're monster right. watch you yeah. know they got a label interested in them they're touring they put yeah. out records they're a real band any final thoughts uh um, the tape readers 21 years after your first interview or something it's the good thing to do if yeah. it's not for you don't kill yourself making it happen <laughs> if you want to be cool you're not going to be cool uh yeah. if you want to make friends you're going to make some great friends you know uh if you want to make some strong connections or carry through your whole fucking life i've soldered cables to have Man. access to a recording studio when no one wanted access to it right I, right I, i've recorded terrible advertisements and, <laughs> and voiceovers that i you know that haunted me late at night when i was trying to sleep and the stuff stuck in your head oh yeah. you know and so you, you know it's yeah it's it's worth it but you gotta you gotta make sure it's something that 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 that, that really pushes the buttons over and makes the serotonin flow. If it don't, it don't. Yeah. You know? Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapeop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time.